0: Welcome to Episode 164 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by our guest, uh, Tim Moore, who is the fellow and co-director of the Cyber Policy Initiative at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he focuses on cybersecurity, online human rights, uh, Internet governance, and the like. Tim, welcome.
1: Thanks, Stuart. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, uh, it'll be a pleasure Uh, uh, this is going to be fun because I'm very interested in the paper you've produced Uh, uh, also uh, uh, joined today and I'm delighted to have him here Paul Rosenzweig the founder of Red Branch Consulting formerly at DHS when I was at DHS doing policy when I was doing policy it was uh, a a lot of fun and he uh, has continued to uh, uh, move his career in the same direction I have which is towards cybersecurity uh, and uh, uh, we'll be talking cybersecurity Today. great to be here Stuart all right and Brian Egan uh, a new steptoe partner former legal advisor at the State Department uh, uh, I've already gone to the Netherlands with him in pursuit of clients and opportunities nice. to speak uh, uh, Brian good to have you back thanks Stuart okay and I'm Stuart Baker formerly with the NSA and DHS and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer let's jump into this Paul the cyber executive order which we've been uh, talking about uh, uh, leaked draft after leaked draft uh, showed up just in time for the WannaCry uh, ransomware uh, mess Uh, uh, so it turns out despite all the delays it was pretty well timed Uh, anything new in the the latest draft that we didn't see in the earlier leaks
2: uh no uh or well, the most recent leak draft is pretty much the same one there was um uh, a few edits to typographical corrections and assignments of of uh responsibility but um basically this dra- this EO um is the very very beginning of a process I-, I counted 15 reports some of them recurring six mandates for the delivery of recommendations uh, all to occur within the next uh, 90 days, right? 90 to 270. Okay. Some of them trail, hmm. um, and uh, exactly zero mandated action items, uh, with the possible exception of telling the agency, federal agencies, that they should measure their own cybersecurity by the NIST cyber framework, which you can maybe count as an action item, if if that's the way you like to think about it. But they
0: didn't have to do anything. Uh, so so, so after, after immigration, they've kind of gone off of telling people to do things in these executive orders. Well,
2: I, it certainly is um, the world record holder so far for least transformative and disruptive Trump executive order of this short administration. Well, Tom, Tom Bossert, uh,
0: well, well, thank you for that. Well, accolade. Uh, I mean, I, I,
2: I think that's actually a good thing. It, it portends a lot of continuity. Yep. Uh, with uh, the there there 's
0: nothing in there that uh, hillary Clinton could have, could not have released or uh, that uh, president obama wouldn 't have recommended is that right
2: exactly in a third term, I think this is more or less where he would have gone. I would say that the only thing that that strikes more of a tonal difference than anything else is uh, leaning much more heavily into the idea. That the private sector bears the principal responsibility for cybersecurity, and the government is just an enabler through information sharing, through standard setting, through um, uh, through some of the IT transformation innovation that has gone uh, that was pulled out of this EO and put in the EO for the American Technology Council. That's kind of a little bit less of the government knows best, and a little bit more of we're from the government and we're here to help uh since neither of those is really accurate i'm not sure how good uh how much of an improvement it is but
0: but it tells it tells us where the administration is leaning that the right. power lies with the people who are going to say i don't think we're going to get this right uh let's leave this for the private sector to
2: say. i i think that's right and and to be fair that's probably you know at a very high level of generality, the basic difference between Democrats and Republicans, right?
3: Well, Republicans I, you think know,
2: the government won't get it right most of the time. Democrats think they will get it right most of the time. Um, they uh, both agree that it doesn't get it right all the time. It's just a matter of degree.
0: Well, to the extent that it's a national security issue, I always used to say that uh, um – National security versus the deregulatory impulse was a heavyweight bout in the uh, uh, in Republican administrations mm-hmm. and a welterweight bout in uh, <laughs> uh, admi- Democratic administrations, but still a pretty even match. Yeah,
2: I think that's a, that's a fair characterization. <laughs> uh, what will be really really interesting um, in this is if you is if we check back in uh, in. 180, 270 days to see what the recommendations actually are, you know, how vigorous they are, how, um, transformative they may or may not be. And then again, if we check in, in a year and a half, 18 to 24 months and see which, if any of them actually have been implemented.
0: Yeah, it's hard to believe. I mean, look, it, it, we've had three administrations in a row, uh, eight, eight years each who thought this was a really, really important thing that had to be addressed, and not one of them was willing to uh, use every lever of power that government had to, because uh, for all of them it was a hard uh, fight. Uh, my guess is uh, there's, there's no low-hanging fruit left here. I think that's right,
2: and I'm not sure I agree with your characterization of this administration. Um, you know, the Obama administration whatever you think of the substance of the policy, came in a hundred and, you know, first 60 days, give yeah. me a review, all guns blazing, you know, put the pedal to the metal and just kept driving change in U.S. cyber policy framework development forward. Right. Some I liked, some I didn't like, but it was, this is, this is really on the top of President Obama's list. Uh, and it got his personal attention at, at various steps along the way um, that signified that. You know the fact that this e o trails immigration trails uh the healthcare care fight in oh in it's Congress. it's all
0: messed up with the with the uh, the russian thing yeah, and and,
2: I, I my guess is that this will be handled professionally, which is a good thing because it'll that'll make it more evolutionary rather than revolutionary but that when it comes to spending chits... Uh, political chits on pushing something new through. Uh, the chits will be spent elsewhere.
0: Yeah, that's, that does make sense. Because you know, who's going to take this into the Oval Office and say, uh, "Mr. President, we'd like to uh, uh, to spend money because uh, uh, or uh, other kinds of uh, a- a political capital uh, to make more secure infrastructure"? After he has said, "Well." Uh, Hillary Clinton got hacked because it's our own damn fault. Uh, um, and that suggests and, and that... after that he
2: said, let's use steam-powered catapults instead of those stupid digital things.
0: Yeah, yeah. I well, mean, he might be right about that. He uh, might
2: be, but, I mean, it does suggest a lack of...
0: Enthusiasm for embracing the digital age. Yeah, right. that's probably right. Uh, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm pleased to say this is... Probably the last president will have was older than me, uh, and so I can understand why he might not embrace the digital age, uh, <laughs> especially with WannaCry floating around there. Uh, uh The U.S. has has been largely spared, not completely. Some big companies uh, uh got hit, but it's really done a number in parts of Europe and uh, Asia. Europe, uh, uh, the uh, Russian uh, Interior Ministry icon that uh, you, uh, you gotta love that. Uh, <laughs> you know it, it it wasn't they who released the um some of the code that was used to to run the wannacry uh, uh worm but um it was their sister uh agency the gru almost certainly that uh, that released it uh uh but uh, uh to be taken down by a tool that you had uh, or your government had released on the world is uh, uh, uh truly justice Delicious irony. Uh, Yes, it (laughs) is. Uh, But, of course, no one uh, other than us is is pointing to that. uh, uh, I'd say... Blame is being equally divided uh, between... Uh, well, no. Uh, blame is being divided between NSA, which ch- created the tool to uh, launch some, not all, of uh, the attacks that are part of uh, uh, WannaCry, uh, uh, and Microsoft, which patched some, but not all, of the machines that are running uh, um, uh, uh, systems that are vulnerable to this. Uh, uh, and uh, the... Uh, NSA uh, fight, uh, probably actually Microsoft, and, and Brian, I'll ask you to jump in on this. Microsoft took advantage of this to deflect the blame, um, uh, to say, yeah, sure, there were 150 million machines running old systems that we didn't patch, but we had told those people that we aren't going to patch your systems. They should have uh, made the move long ago, uh, which is not completely wrong. Uh, and uh, uh, at the same time, they said, but well, this is for the first time, uh, some responsible party has said, yeah, the shadow broker's tools are NSA tools. Uh, uh, NSA developed this, and um, we shouldn't be hoarding vulnerabilities. We should be reporting to them to the uh, manufacturer. Uh, and Brad Smith, who used to be the lawyer uh, and is now also president of Microsoft, uh, uh, used the opportunity to... Um, Tout his digital Geneva Convention, uh, which he's been talking about for a year or two, uh, um, I I I I have trouble taking it seriously, but I, I'm going to ask you to take it seriously for a minute. What is he? What is the digital uh, Geneva Convention? Sure.
3: So the Geneva Conventions, of course, were developed by the world powers after World War II. They established the basic rules of the road for uh, armed conflict. And what uh, Brad Smith is saying is we should have similar rules for the road for cyberspace, uh, uh, including in peacetime. Um, it is, on the one hand, I think it's an interesting idea. It's something in light of the recent state spate of state-sponsored cyber attacks. Uh, It's something that uh, will uh, be newsworthy in a sense. I think there are some pretty enormous challenges associated with this, both in terms of substance and in process. So, in terms of substance, uh, some of the things, as you've alluded to, Stuart, that Microsoft is suggesting, uh, would be very controversial amongst the world digital powers, including the United States. Uh, for example, sharing of, uh, known vulnerabilities, uh, with the private sector, uh, the identification of certain tools to be shared with the private sector. Uh, so.
0: Yeah, because he doesn't, he, he basically seems to say you should share them all if you find them well that's a recipe for nobody going to look because if they really had to share them all they wouldn't spend millions of dollars to develop a tax they'd just say yeah well microsoft you're on your own you've got plenty of money go look for them yourself uh which is where microsoft is today i'm not sure that a ban on um or a requirement Mm -hmm. that you share all vulnerabilities would uh actually Mm -hmm. produce a safer internet
3: Now, some of the things he's talking about are things that uh, governments are maybe slowly doing. Some of them resemble some of the norms we've heard about in the context of the U.N., the the G7 statement earlier this year. Um, But I think it would be a challenge. If you look at Microsoft paper, uh, it's hard to see governments in any time soon coming to agreement on those things. Plus, uh, our current administration here in the U.S. has shown a complete aversion to uh, multilateral treaty negotiations. So it's yeah. a tough time uh, to be thinking about a new uh, major treaty.
0: Yeah, and this is the kind of thing that gives norm efforts a, a bad name it's it's very self-interested right they, 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 uh, his, he's got six principles and all of them are not me not me leave me out of it uh, it's sort of a, you know we want to be digital Switzerland without having to actually invest in what the Swiss invested in uh, in terms of being able to defend themselves uh, I, you know it's uh, no targeting of tech companies never oh god uh, you know the, the humanity, I uh, assist private sector efforts to detect, contain, and respond to events, report vulnerabilities to vendors rather than stockpile poil- them to exploit them, exercise restraint in developing weapons, uh, um, commit to nonproliferation, and limit offensive operation to avoid a mass event. I mean, some of those things you might say, yeah, that might be a good idea, but they are so clearly... Uh, more in microsoft 's interest than anybody else's that it's kind of hard to take this seriously as a public policy proposal
3: I think w- one of the in in defense of the proposal uh, in addition to proposing the digital Geneva Convention, uh, Microsoft is talking about uh, a set of standards that industry would have to sign up to and they 've mm-hmm. actually done some work working with their competitors in developing those standards fair
0: enough yes they did, they did say yeah we'll we'll uh, make available our code to multiple uh, jurisdictions. Uh, uh but that's kind of you know trying to make nice to people so they won't beat you it's, it also has um a, a serious foundation in uh, their economic interest because if they don't share that no one's going to trust their code and therefore they aren't going to be able to sell their products in other countries so i i i, I, I i'm just not I, I don't see a real Probability that anyone other than Microsoft and you know maybe Apple would sign on to this stuff.
3: You know, I think there are spaces where governments can do better in this uh, area, obviously. And um, you know, you, you think about what's already out there—the cybercrime convention uh, f- uh, from Budapest 15 years ago. Uh, law enforcement cooperation basically is very slow to happen under that we we as governments we should be able to do better in a lot of these things uh, I'm, I'm not sure that the formula that Microsoft is proposing is the right approach but having governments talk about what to do to combat cyber crime in the digital space I think there's there's some merit to
0: so everybody's first introduction to uh, Bitcoin apparently is going to be going down and trying to find a way to get $300 worth of Bitcoin to send to the WannaCry uh, authors uh um, Paul, what's this mean for the future of Bitcoin?
2: Well, I mean, you listed all the people to blame and you didn't, you didn't blame, uh, Satoshi Nak- Nakamoto, the inventor of Bitcoin. I think I have the name quite wrong. There. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's the one who enabled, uh, the ability for criminals to have anonymous transfers of money across the network. Uh, I suspect that if ransomware becomes as big a problem as it looks like it might,
0: we'll see nations, uh, outlawing.
3: And
0: even better, if if it keeps happening, at some point you say, well, the only reason we can't track these guys is they're getting paid anonymously. So uh, let's um – find a way to uh, uh, prevent that nations with black market problems outlaw cash transactions
2: yep. right uh, india just demonetize half the country by reducing all of the large bills to precisely to avoid tax avoidance um even more however and this is kind of my off the wall idea uh we can destroy the bitcoin chain right it, it relies on a bunch of distributed servers none of which are immune from uh, government intervention by hacking, DDoS attacking, you name it. There are at least a dozen, well, half dozen ways that you could disrupt the reliability of the blockchain in a way that makes it no longer useful. So if Bitcoin becomes too big a problem, I suspect somebody, and it may not be us, it may be the Russians or the Chinese, is going to um, beat it, either that or turn all their crates Cray supercomputers and uh and corner the market,
0: yes, yeah, so which again could uh, allow them to subvert it right. uh, um, yeah, plus uh you know in an effort to find something scarce. Uh, uh, the inventor of Bitcoin said, let's make people just do massive amounts of computation, ever more massive uh, uh, amounts of computation, which requires ever more computing power and ever more specialized machines. And now big chunks of this are being done in China, in data centers devoted to this uh, effort and f- uh, run on electric power derived from coal. So... I predict that uh, green uh, terrorists (laughs) will will strike at uh, Bitcoin in an effort to save the planet. I I like that one. (laughs) Uh, So... um, uh, NSA's latest compliance problems in the FISA court. I'm not sure I can do this uh, quickly, but let me, actually, let me, let me come back to that and, uh, uh, mention the, uh, a, a short one for those of you who have been following the fight between St. Jude Medical and, uh, MedSec, uh, where I have a dog in the fight. Uh, um, there's a recent coverage that says that Abbott Labs, which owns St. Jude, uh, made a settlement offer to MedSec, um, which said, um, here's the deal, if you take this settlement, you will never again research any Saint Jude product uh, and you will never talk to a government agency about the security of these products uh, unless there 's an inquiry going on that 's been launched by that agency and they 've asked you to uh, participate, and you 've given notice to Abbott uh, that you 're going to do it. Uh, I, it feels like a gag order, kind of a, uh, a surprisingly ham handed uh, effort, which I suspect will be kind of a Follow on uh, uh, Black Eye for for Abbott uh, um, and may get them investigated by somebody who says, you know, we don't want you to withhold evidence of potentially fatal hacks on... Uh, yeah, the, if I were the things. FDA, I wouldn't buy
2: that one. Oh.
0: Uh, yeah the the fda has has becoming is is becoming less and less enamored of uh, um, the way at least saint Jude and maybe parts other parts of the industry have approached their problem, which is you know sort of like uh, the egyptian solution of denial 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 um, uh, okay uh, so the 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 other thing I wanted to talk about was NSA's problems. And, and uh, uh, Paul, uh, keep me honest here. Uh, it's complicated. But basically, uh, NSA has long had, under Section 702, authority to collect information uh, where one end of the communication touches the United States. Uh, and they can look for email addresses of senders email addresses of recipients and email addresses that are mentioned in the body of the uh, uh the message uh, so that uh um, you might be getting a message between two people uh, some of them might be Americans uh, all of them might be Americans in which one american says to the other uh, say uh what's the the phone number of that terrorist that we were talking to the other day, uh, uh, and the guy says, "Here it is." And they say, "Okay." That gets picked up as it, as it crosses various uh, uh, parts of the network. Uh, NSA can say, "Okay, we're going to collect that," even though it's not to or from somebody who's a known terrorist or a suspected terrorist. Um, that's that about collection ran into a second problem, which is some, sometimes uh, they've been a little cautious about explaining this but there are uh multiple communication transactions that occur um, and i suspect that what they are is when you log on to um, the internet and you've got gmail or hotmail enabled uh, uh gmail or hotmail sends you everything that you've collected that you've received in the last uh uh whatever couple of hours in one big lump which means it all gets picked up so that if one of those messages is, oh yeah, here's the terrorist phone number. Everything comes in, including emails between Americans that have nothing to do with terrorism. Uh, and that has bothered the FISA court for a long time because of their big chunk of communications. What NSA said was, don't worry, your honor. We'll put that in a special place and we will not look at at those communications. We will not query those communications for the names of Americans um, because if we picked up an American communication in that it was probably incidental and that's a lot of Amer- Americans in there, so we're just not going to ask for information about Americans in that context, which the court said was fine the first time they said it, and then it turned out they actually didn't manage to execute on that, and uh, a significant chunk of queries Went into the databases uh, for Americans, and if I'm again, I'm, I'm reading the opinion and the IG um, uh, report. It looks as though, uh, although they're famously techie, NSA relied on the equivalent of a um, a checklist of things. So if you had authority to look in these uh, 702 databases, um, and you put in a search. Say saying, look at all databases to find this particular person I'm sus- I'm suspicious of. You would get back, without necessarily knowing it, um, information from the database that you weren't supposed to be querying for Americans uh, um, and. The only way to prevent that was to run through a checklist that said, oh, by the way, do you have authority to go into the 702 uh, database for this? And if you said no, you were supposed to click a little uh, radio button and you wouldn't uh, search that. And, you know, some 5 or 10% of the time, somebody failed to click the button. Um, That's a compliance problem. The court got shirty about it, uh, as courts are wont to do, uh, and uh, refused to approve the uh, uh, the next, well, it, it kept extending the old year's uh, approval rather than approving the new one while it waited to see what uh, NSA was going to do about it. Uh, and uh, uh, NSA finally, and this is kind of what's appalling to me, it finally said, you know what, to hell with it. We're just not going to collect stuff about. So from now on, if you want to ask for the phone number or the email address of some terrorist, don't worry. We're never going to know. Uh, we're not going to take, a, we're not going to collect about, uh, information anymore upstream. And therefore there's no database that we have to declare off limits so that we don't have compliance problems. I, I have to say that's not an attractive look.
2: It is strange, isn't it? That we 're talking about the technological incompetence of the nsa yeah a, a, which in you know just a few minutes ago, we were talking about you know how how wonderful you know they were and and you know the they 've discovered all these vulnerabilities, and should they be giving them to
1: so, uh, you, to you, the government
2: so so i i 'm constantly puzzled, which is it? Do we have the most brilliant cyber uh, jedis in the world working for NSA? Or do we have a bunch of people who can't even be trained to hit a radio button, or to automate hitting a radio button that, and unclicking it when you actually have the authority? Yeah. You,
0: you, um, you, 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 checklists never work, uh, uh, and so it, it's implausible that that you would never get compliance violations by having this in place. Uh, it's you know it's pretty good. Uh, I'm sure they prevented anybody from doing this deliberately because they could. Catch them, but it, it was never going to be a hundred percent. And you know, part of this is the uh, expectations of the court that everything would be hundred in, percent. In, Courts
2: um, believe in, in in complete compliance with their orders. That they do. No, I, I,
0: I have a suspicion that what's really
2: lying behind this is the fact that they that they didn't find much value in the about collections. I, I don't know this, right, yeah. But but reading between the lines, they would never have thrown it away if this was of the same value as the two from collections or that they're doing or the uh, uh uh data searches on foreigners that don't involve any Americans that are doubly sourced out overseas which they will defend to their death in the renewal and they just were trying to you know give up a battle that uh they didn't want to fight with the expiration of the 702 authority I th- this I think year.
0: that's right that's uh, yes. um, but uh, they they may they were careful to say we are giving up something. Mm. This, this has real value. Uh, um, I, and so what they really were saying is we're giving this up because the climate in the country, in the court, uh, in Congress, is such that uh, uh, it, it is more political hassle than it is worth in terms of intelligence, which means they're basically saying uh, you want to see a risk-averse intelligence community? <laughs> Here it is. Uh, uh, we are refusing to gather intelligence that we could get that might do us some good because, um, uh, obviously, Americans, far from being grateful, are just going to abuse us over it. Uh, and and if, if anything feels like September 10, that uh, calculus does. All right. Uh, last question. Um, taping... Jim Comey is now in the news. The idea that maybe, uh, you know, the president raised it himself. Uh, Gee, it would be pretty funny if there were tapes of those uh, dinner meetings, Jim. Uh, Be careful what you say. Um, And there is some speculation that he has taped uh, uh, the people he does business with from time to time. Uh, um, uh, uh, here's my question. Paul, you, you've been involved in um, investigations where the question of the legality of mm-hmm. the tape was uh, very much at issue. Uh, um, could the president be in trouble for taping Jim Comey?
2: Depends where he did it. Washington, D.C. is a one-party consent jurisdiction, uh-huh. so he didn't need Jim Comey's consent to tape. Uh, and the Federal Assimilative Crimes Act, uh, which is actually a provisional law, says that the law that applies to federal enclaves within a any state jurisdiction assimilate like-minded state law resp- uh, uh, rules.
0: And if he did it in New York, uh, uh, Trump New Tower? York,
2: I think I think is a is a two-party consensus. State. I'm I know not
0: sure. I th- it might be one. M-
2: Maryland is a two. Yes. Right. Um, uh, I don't know where New Jersey is with the uh, with the hotel, so my, and I don't know Florida either. My memory
0: is that um, the some of the the surprising one party states are driven by law enforcement interests uh, and Absolutely. prosecutors who said, "Oh no, no, we want to be able to tape everybody, and we don't want no pesky uh, interference from the two party consent requirement." So I believe New York has, is is one. Well, that may very well. What's
2: Florida though? That mar-a-lago yeah ah good question
0: and what's new jersey
2: i i i didn't know we were going to ask this question <laughs> yeah yeah But before all you right. get to the end i'll have
0: the answer of okay. mr okay. Mr. And g very good all right well, so let's jump into our new york new is a one-party
2: consent state all right okay and we'll have florida in a second okay.
0: but you can
1: start with tim because he's all much right. more interesting tim
0: i thank you for joining us this
1: is great Thanks for having me, Stuart.
0: Alright, so you've been working, you you, you heard uh, me disrespecting norms, at least in uh, uh, Microsoft's norms, uh, um, uh, and you. Stuart? Yes. It's, it's a two party consent state in Florida. Oh, <laughs> do not let that, uh, <laughs> uh, the FBI director show up and uh, for dinner at, at Marlboro. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Tim,
2: I just had to get that out of my way.
0: Out of, out of okay, Tim. Uh, you've written this report uh, uh, paper uh, uh, proposing what amounts to a a new norm. Um, Give me the uh, elevator speech for why this norm makes sense, especially to people who are skeptical about norms in general.
1: Sure, happy to. And um, I think I should start by pointing out that sometimes it's kind of hard to keep track of all these major cyber incidents and that, whereas WannaCry was probably the wake-up call for ransomware. We shouldn't forget that about a year ago, the Bangladeshi Central Bank, I think, was the wake-up call for the financial stability. Could have um, been a
0: billion-dollar wake-up call. <laughs> it could yes. have been,
1: yes. They wanted a billion dollars. They uh, managed to steal eighty um $80 million, um, so not quite the same scale. And spend
0: it all on ICBMs, probably.
1: I'm sure they had a wish list. <laughs> um, and Christmas, I think, was was fun for them uh, last year. Um, but what we saw, actually, the G20 finance ministers do earlier this year in March was really focus on financial stability in the context of th- cyber threats. So the concern about financial stability being affected by hackers has now got, reached the highest level in government. And we, therefore, decided, uh, I, together with my colleagues at Carnegie, George Perkovich and Ella Levitt decided to really focus on global financial stability in the context of cybersecurity. And the most severe risk is data data integrity, where if data gets changed and the underlying financial value, you could see an erosion of trust.
0: Right, So So because then the books don't balance at the end of the day. uh, Nobody knows who owes what, and people start to wonder whether you actually have the money that you uh, purport to have, and it's easy to get a bank run.
1: Exactly. And um, I mean, we saw this play out in 2007, 2008, um, which I think is still fresh in the minds of many policymakers. And what we are proposing is um, actually for the G20 to explicitly commit for the states not to manipulate the integrity of data of financial institutions and to also commit to cooperate when such data corruption occurs, which is most likely to be the case because a non-state actor, um, most likely criminals, would do so. I would also add so is is uh, well, let me just ask would wanna
0: cry violate the norm that you're proposing uh, it's it's rendering the data um inaccessible and it is transforming the data uh but uh, it, it in theory you could probably get it back
1: so ransomware is a really interesting example and I think we can we might want to talk about availability uh, later on as okay. whether that should be part of this agreement or not. Um let me just so you really
0: but proposing a very narrow thing. Don't screw up, forge, uh, uh modify data in the banking system in a way that could lead to a crisis of confidence in a matter of hours. Uh we're not talking about whether you're engaged in espionage. We're not talking about uh whether you're um holding the bank up uh, uh, to steal money that's right uh, we're not even talking about whether you can prevent the uh the bank from getting access to data for a period of time we're just talking about purely corrupting the database
1: that's right the integrity of data is the most severe risk for global financial stability and yep. that's where you see widespread consensus to among most people in the technical community also in the financial uh, sector and I would also argue and, and add to your point about that we're proposing a new norm. What we found as part of our research was actually that this might be less really proposing a new norm and much more making explicit what might already be existing restraint among most of most states. So from our perspective, from based on this paper is the result of a project that's been going on for a year and a half now, is that most states actually haven't used offensive cyber operations to manipulate the integrity of data where you could see that that risk for financial stability so our proposal is meant to really make explicit what we believe might be existing restraint and by then making that explicit the benefits as a result of that agreement would have can be distinguished into several factors the first one is that the G20 as the largest economies would mm-hmm. send a very clear signals to some states or very few states that are not as integrated into the global economy that they should not Consider using this tool because we have seen some states use very aggressive tools through cyberspace in the last few years, targeting some of the major economies. Oh, we
0: absolutely! I mean, we, every time the U.S. government, uh, Brian, you, uh, I, I'm, I, this is a slam on the State Department. Every time the State Department says we need a norm that says you shouldn't attack X, you shouldn't attack Y, the North Koreans say, "Oh, they're really scared of that. Let's attack X. Let's attack <laughs> Y." Uh, it, uh, it's it's like a targeting advice to the uh, uh, to the uh, to the rogue nations. Uh, and so uh, I, I, it seems to me that that's by itself not likely to, uh, to be successful. I, uh,
3: I disagree. Uh, I think that it's really important for states actually to work towards identifying these norms. And I agree with what Tim said, that um, one uh, nice thing about this interesting paper is really clarifying and crystallizing around the norm of not manipulating data in this particular sector. I think if you read what states have done in the context of the UN, you could say it's already in there, but making it very clear, plus Uh, cooperation between states, which I think is an area where we really need to do more work. What what do you do when there's a problem? How do states... Do you you need to file an MLAT request, which takes months and months to process, or is there something more that can be done there?
0: So uh, let me me, uh, uh, explain why I'm soft on this norm system, Uh, and it's something Tim just said, uh, which is that uh, this is probably already a norm, and let me make it more explicit. Uh, We've had time... We've had probably opportunities since the 90s to zero out... on Milosevic's uh, uh, bank accounts uh, or uh, to expose Vladimir Putin's uh, 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 ill-gotten gains. Uh, And I've always believed, I've never been party to these interagency meetings, which is why I can speculate about them, uh, (laughs) uh, that uh, uh, every time the intelligence community or DOD said, let's do that, uh, whoever was Treasury Secretary said, over my dead body. uh, We cannot put at risk the stability of the financial system that is the source of much of our economic and other power uh, uh, just for a feel-good moment uh, for some uh, tin-pot dictator's uh, uh, ill-gotten gains. Uh, and so if, if we aren't willing to do it, well, then we don't have that as a weapon. And we've already unilaterally uh, disarmed what a great opportunity to, to get the rest of the world to unilaterally disarm, too.
1: And, and to Brian's point, um, Brian mentioned the process at the UN, the UN group of governmental experts that's been the main vehicle for that. And they're taking a very broad view, which I think will be, uh, if, it, if it's successful down the road, create the regime for rules of the road for cyberspace generally. And what we are proposing is essentially that the G20 at the heads of state level or the finance ministers could complement this existing effort at the UN at the highest level and focus specifically on what's the mandate of the G20, the economic oh, t- sector t- don't and Don't let the
0: UN give out mandates. Oh, Jesus. That was <laughs> just, you know, six years of whining about how there have to be, has to be a, an income transfer to low-income nations uh, uh, in order to bribe them into giving this mandate. Uh, why would yeah. we do that? Let the G20 just go out and do it.
1: Yeah. So, so let me just be clear. I was... Uh, Going specifically um, with regard to Brian's point about that we have an existing process at the UN and that the way we think about this specific proposal and paper is not creating or taking away from what the GGE has been doing because you have a lot of states already invested in that, right? Right. But thinking about how can we make further progress because at the state where we're at with regard to the GGE, it's been making progress but very slowly the threat landscape continues to deteriorate, as we saw with Bangladesh and now the ransomware yeah.
0: yeah. I, I, well, let's take it as red. GGE, bad idea. We should, we should leave somebody there, you know, a GS-12, to carry on the discussions, and they'll go about as far as you'd expect them to go, with or without a GS-12 there. Um, but I, well, I'll, I'll give Brian uh, extra time. Uh, but first, is in order to... Uh, um, Uh, pay for your extra time. Uh, How realistic is my assessment of what happened in the interagency when somebody proposed zeroing out a bank account or otherwise exposing the banking systems, uh, uh, the banking uh, activities of our adversaries?
3: Well, you hope there remains that interagency that has those discussions. So uh, one question is whether that continues to exist. But I think, assuming that it does, uh, you have voices in our government who would be very concerned about that type of activity. And I
0: assume state would would always back Treasury on that. Uh,
3: I think – that's there's a lot to be said for uh, from a foreign policy perspective for uh, exercising restraint. Our adversaries appear to exercise restraint in that space as well, uh, by and large.
0: Yeah, so. I think that's right. The, the, the Iranians and the uh, North Koreans have messed around with the banks, but nobody else has. Paul? Well,
3: uh, just
2: a um, question. What's the, what's the enforcement mechanism? Not hard enforcement. Great but, question. But, I mean, in the, in the norms area of nuclear power... Uh, besides, uh, or nuclear uh, bombs, besides the the threat uh, of, of retaliation, we had um, national technical means of oversight, we had inspection mechanisms, all of which could lead to either public shaming or uh, 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 steps on an escalatory ladder in response. One of the things that has always been um, challenging for me about cyber norms is that there's no public evidence of violation. Uh, that is discernible. Uh, indeed, Russia may have already violated this norm, and there may be uh, buried code somewhere in J.P. Morgan's uh, or the New York Stock Exchange's accounting systems that is just waiting for the go codes from from Vlad the, the Putinator. So what's our mechanism, if any, for uh, uh, ensuring ourselves that we're somewhere close to you know, not unilaterally disarming and putting our glass jaw out there, saying "hit me, hit me, hit me." Uh,
1: Paul, that's a great point, and actually one that we thought really hard about as we were writing this paper and looking at the project. And what makes the pr- what the way we're thinking about this proposal and the regime specifically focusing on the integrity of data is that it consists of three pillars. The first one is the commitment of states that they wouldn't do this. The second one, and that's th- the crucial one f- to your point, is a commitment to cooperate, so a positive norm, when such data corruption occurs. And then the third is essentially a system that you are able to detect this. So let me tackle this, the second one, the positive norm to cooperate, because that's essentially what gets around the attribution problem. Because if you get a commitment by states a priori that they would be willing to share information and to cooperate when data corruption occurs, which we assume is most likely the case in the case of criminals, because major economies don't have an interest in doing this, then if such an incident occurs, and the state refuses to cooperate and to share information, then you shift the burden on that state to explain why that state is not cooperating, even though the state signed up for this previously. So you're shifting the burden of proof essentially on that state. And if that state um, then does not do so, it provides more legitimacy to take other actions and gets around the attribution problem. To and state.
0: and I should say, and Brian, I, I, you know what resistance there was to the Budapest Convention from uh, probably slightly specious and maybe even to their regret. Uh, other countries, uh, the Chinese, the Russians have said, oh, yeah, this is shocking Western imperialism. Uh, but it gets around that by just saying, yeah, yeah, whatever about that criminal stuff. Uh, uh, we're only asking you to cooperate in tracking these bad guys in accordance with the uh, agreement that you, uh, that you made. And the details of that can be worked out over time.
3: That's right. That's one of the benefits of not having, of having a a norm is they're relatively flexible. That's a weakness that some will point to as well. How do you enforce the norm? But, um, it's something that is a little easier to sign on to. I would also say on the enforcement side, an interesting tool that we have in the United States that we have yet to really use, and you've talked about this in some of your earlier podcasts, Stuart, is, economic sanctions. Uh, there's a cyber executive order in place that would allow the imposition of sanctions against uh, malicious cyber activity and actors. And this is an interesting area. If, if states cooperate in identifying the bad guys, uh, there's a regime that you could set up to uh, impose financial penalties on them.
0: So, okay, so now there's an obligation to... Uh to assist, which presumably ought to mean, you know, I, I'm in hot pursuit of the guys. I have reason to believe they used this computer. Please go get it. Uh, uh, here's the, the clues we have about their location. Uh, what can you do uh, uh, to investigate? Uh, right up to the point of uh, um, intelligence services saying, here's what we know about uh, people, or here's some of what we know about people in your territory. Uh, so you could really push the countries from which this activity occurred to be more helpful.
1: That's absolutely right, and I think it'll probably be – you have several countries that already work together a lot on these issues, and you have very robust cooperation, and then you have a lot of countries where we have very little or none, um, and that is – tied to the Budapest Convention. So the the process that we envision would be that G20 agrees to this, but then sets up a process where the Financial Stability Board acts as a convener to really hammer out the details with the financial industry, with the central banks, and also ask, okay, what do you want to actually occur when such data uh, corruption incidents occur in terms of cooperation? What are you expecting the other state to provide? So we didn't put this in the paper because um, that is something that we believe Needs to be developed by the community in and of itself, mm-hmm. and the G20 provides a political mandate to do that. Um, and, and that's essentially, I think, what would we'll need to happen to really build a robust regime that goes beyond what we've already seen in so other So actually, areas.
0: I, I, you know, I, 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 bringing the governments in often just slows everything down. If you could just say, we expect, uh, each of the G20 finance ministers to make it clear to their large banks that they should cooperate in this uh, so that you can say to people, uh, um, you know, somebody just uh, took a whole bunch of money uh, by f- falsifying records in my uh, uh, bank, and it looks as though it went to you, private bank in, uh, uh, you know, Western China. Uh, we're expecting you to help us. You know, forget your government it's up to you to uh, you could easily have private sector to private sector agreements uh, uh under this uh umbrella that would mean that you didn't have to politicize every request
1: and this also goes to po- uh, Paul's point about how do you identify and detect these these incidents, which you you need the private sector for this regime to be robust, because they are the ones who will identify whether such data corruption occurs and whether the yeah. cooperation occurs among the the financial institutions directly or the governments. Um, that's then, as you said, that that really can also play out in the private sector. And the, the, I think what happened in the last two or three years as well is that we've seen already governments putting more pressure on the financial industry to build up and improve their due diligence. You've had the G7 fundamental elements of cybersecurity and financial industry. You've had the CPMI report on financial stability. So these systems are now increasingly being put in place in financial institutions ac- across the world, which would then be the equivalent of the monitoring system that we've seen in other security regimes that actually make such a regime and such a norm robust. So let's, let's
0: go to uh, uh, Paul's other point Sanctions. What? How do you punish failure to cooperate? How do you punish the people who are violating the norm? Uh, uh, how developed is, is your thinking on that point?
1: So that's another step. I mean, this is now thinking, I think, more in terms of the, the, the five to 10 year horizon, because what we inet- initially need is the political mandate, the process in place. So what are the expectations of corporation, right. et cetera? And then once you have that in place and everybody's bought in, you think about, okay, what is the, the enforcement mechanism that you can put in place? And sanctions is one tool. Um, if we use North Korea as an example, which, by the way, the, the analogy to all of this is counterfeit currency, right? There is a convention dating back to 1929 where states signed up not to counterfeit currency. Most states don't do that uh, uh, today apart from North Korea
0: with the super dollars. I, I think that as I remember the Germans and maybe the Russians did a lot of that during World War II.
1: <laughs> wartime is, <laughs> is a separate story. Maybe and, the Americans uh, too. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, um. I, I, you, you make the argument that uh, the, the paper we're flooding the world with has a little has little enough basis that it's practically <laughs> a forgery. And,
1: and to be fair we actually think that given the potential effect on global financial stability um, we, we argue that this agreement should apply in wartime. There's a really interesting Story about
0: oh, let's like, you know I I, I, I I frankly trying to figure what the rules are going to be in wartime strikes me as a fool's errand. Uh, uh, we don't have that many wars these days. When we have a big one all bets are going to be off and nobody's going to care what the Red Cross thinks. Uh, uh, so I, my my sense on that is that uh, we we should try to make rules for the world we're in and uh, uh, worry about whether, you know, basically whoever does the Nuremberg trials after the next war, whoever wins the next war, uh, will set the standards. And I think you're wasting your time pursuing that. But uh, uh, I do see, I, I guess I'll, because I'll, we're coming to the end, um, The traditional reluctance on norms, or at least the the, the people who have caused the most difficulty in reaching consensus on norms, have been the Russians and to to a slightly lesser extent the Chinese. uh, but, you know, the G20 is dominated by finance ministers who all tend to think alike. Uh, this was, uh, uh, Paul, you remember, uh, whenever we got in the room with our counterparts from Homeland Security from Europe, you would have thought that we were talking to other Americans and not the uh, uh, privacy loving uh, america hating uh, uh, folks that uh, we usually dealt with from europe uh, uh, and I think the same is true for finance ministers. They all have a job which is to make sure that there 's no failure of the economic system on their watch, uh, which means that if if you 're looking for a way to reel the Chinese and the Russians in, this ought to be the way to do it that my
1: theory, yours. I agree with that. And based on the conversations we've had over the course of the past year that fed into the paper, I would say that there is a realistic chance for this. In fact, when the German finance minister spoke at Carnegie a couple of weeks ago, and Germany is hosting the G20 this year, he did mention that this had been discussed in the G, among the G20 finance ministers. And there is a big majority of states that generally agree about something uh, similar. And then I think China is particularly interesting. Um the Chinese currency was added to the IMF um currency basket uh, only two years ago, I believe. Um the Russians have included a specific reference to the financial sector in their in their draft uh, convention on, on information security. So I do think that there is a real opportunity here and it depends on on some of the details and whether from the high level you get into the into the nitty-gritty. Um but the next few weeks and months, I think, will shed more light on that. And we at, at Kearney are now planning of reaching out to more stakeholders that think that this is an interesting idea and that are interested in working with us on this. So um for anybody that is interested, do point them our direction. So uh,
0: last word from Brian or
1: Paul?
3: say data privacy is an area that, particularly when you're sharing between financial institutions, um, that is something Absolutely. that we'll have right, to... Right
0: now, it's a big problem. Everybody's worried about doing it uh, uh, outside the U.S. Uh, and having the G20 say, for a certain purposes like this, we expect you to share the data, and that's how we interpret our law, would be enormously uh, freeing or liberating.
3: If, if, if it can be done, yes. Right. I worry about the
2: catastrophic failure mode. The, everybody signs up, but the time it 's broken is the time that you know the New York Stock Exchange is wiped out to zero
0: so uh, you could do that tomorrow in other ways, yes. right, so uh, my sense on that is we 're living with fragility uh, 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 the current fragility uh, and we may be dancing at the edge of the volcano <laughs> uh, uh, the rest of our lives uh, uh, but uh, um, i i i while I agree with you that. This could fail badly. Uh, um, there are a lot of things that could fail badly, and I'd rather have something in place. Uh, so, yeah, whoever is doing the Russian version of so the, Are the, you being in favor of an international?
3: <laughs>
2: Mark, it has taken 164 uh, Steptoe podcasts. But today, dear listeners, send in your notes. Ask Stuart. What happened? <laughs> yes, Where, was he
0: drinking before he came? he drunk the Kool-Aid? Uh, or has he just gone crazy? <laughs> I, you're, you're absolutely right. I was going to say, somewhere there is somebody who does the, the Russian version of the Steptoe Cyber Law <laughs> podcast who is saying, well... If even Baker uh, supports this, uh, you know, uh, the world has really changed. No, it must be wrong. It is secret That's American true. plot. <laughs> Stabilize ruble. All right. Tim, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Uh, uh Paul, uh, uh, Brian Egan, uh, thanks very much for joining us on this. This has been episode 164, as Paul has memorably pointed out, of the Steptoe Cyber Law podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, if you got suggestions, Suggestions uh, or comments on my uh, weak need, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, a- application for admission to the Democratic uh, uh, Party. Uh, <laughs> feel free to send them to Stepto Cyberlaw Podcast. Uh, sorry, to Cyberlaw Podcast at steptoe.com. Coming up, we're going to have Bill Kroll, former who's the director of Safenet, a partner at Alsup Louis, former uh, deputy director of NSA, uh, a big uh, uh, guy in the the um, VC funding of cyber security f- uh, firms, which is a hot activity. And we'll ask him what's happening uh, um, from his point of view in that market. Uh, uh, also we're going to have a special episode on virtual currency and blockchain applications uh, in which the uh, blockchain takes over the podcast. Uh, we're going to have Melton Demerours uh, who is the director of the Digital Currency Group. Uh, And we hope you'll join us for those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.